One thing those experiences taught me is that no matter how stable you think your situation is, it can all come undone in a moment. Welcome, Assyrian Podcast family, to episode 42. It's John in Chicago, and this week I talked to the vice president of the Assyrian American Bar Association, Christina Abraham. Christina has a fantastic story to tell. She not only seeks to help Assyrians, but seeks to help humanity as a whole throughout her legal work. Christina's journey includes a lot of actual travel, but not in the cozy vacationing sense. She's an immigration lawyer primarily and also represents those facing human rights abuses. To get to that point in her career, she saw a lot of things. Christina is not just a legal professional, but a humanitarian. This episode will show you glimpses of that, and you can also read more about Christina and her practice, Abraham Law, at abrahamlaw.co. We've profiled incredible Assyrian women who are doing amazing things in the Assyrian community before, and want to keep adding to that list. You might remember episode number four with Savina Dawood, who co-founded the Tuti organization in the Assyrian homeland. Well, this Christmas, they are trying to deliver Christmas gifts for 4,650 children in Nineveh, and they need $6 per child to make this happen. We'd love for the Assyrian podcast listeners to check out that link in the episode description and make a donation. Thank you for helping with that. If you ever want to reach out to us, send us an email if you'd like at info at assyrianpodcast.com with any comments or suggestions about what or who you'd like to hear on the podcast. A huge thank you to everyone that's been listening, or even if this is your first time. We truly appreciate your support, and we plan on continuing to give you quality weekly episodes of some wonderful Assyrians. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Kalagarakos and the injury lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Kalagarakos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. Christina, you are a successful lawyer who practices immigration, civil rights, and employment law, amongst other things. You've been doing this in one form or another since 2005. Why that as opposed to, let's say, divorce law, injury law, or any other type of law? Uh, that's a good question. I think it just happened to be how my professional interest developed. I didn't always want to be a lawyer. Uh, I was, uh, I went to undergrad and I started in political science and I don't think I, I think like a lot of young people, I didn't choose the major that fit with a career that I necessarily wanted. I chose the major that was just kind of interesting to me. Like I liked political science, so I, it's like okay, let's let's major in this, and I, it, I mean, looking back now, like I would advise people in, the, you know, getting into college not to do it that way. Okay. I think I ended up in the right place for me, <laughs> but that was probably a lot of like luck and God and family and you know like the the other right stuff. But 
the way that I did it probably was um, the way I chose my my major. Was Do you have like these early childhood thing. memories of what you wanted to be as you got older before you went into political science? Oh yeah, sure. When I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. You're not the first guest I've had who's wanted to be... Rebel Bachmol told me he wanted no to be an way. astronaut as well. Yeah, yeah it's, I mean, I really was convinced that by my age at this time, I would be out in outer space on my way to, you know... That's awesome, some though. aliens and trek some stars. But it did you know, I think I had to... I realized, like, at a young enough age that technology wasn't going to develop to where I'd be, you know, I'd, I'd probably sure. be experimenting on monkeys in orbit or something <laughs> if I became an astronaut, not necessarily what I wanted to do. So then I started thinking, I always wanted to do something kind of exciting. Um, archaeology, I thought about um, being an FBI agent at one point. I thought about a lot of things. Uh, I think that I developed also a sense of social justice, maybe because of my time at... Um, like, you know, volunteering with the church and you know, our upbringing and our awareness about things going on in the world uh, made me kind of attune or sensitive to these types of issues. And so when I heard about thing, other things even happening, you know, elsewhere in the world, I became very interested. I think that there is something um, that connects all of humanity together and that if we focused on that a little bit more and brought that out and, and attended to it more, we'd, we would be contributing better. Okay. <laughs> I think, to no, the that, world that, around that us. makes sense. I also think we have a, a spiritual duty to make the world a better place than it was when we first came into it. And uh, so that kind of fed into like, okay, so what am I really going to do with my life? Okay. Um, so I, I came to choose law as the profession. Okay. And thankfully, my major fit into that world. But um, And where did that interest specifically with political science come in? Because you obviously have this natural kind of humanitarian inclination within you. Why political science as opposed to the many other avenues that eventually kind of feed into law? Um, so I think it started, the political science started from a fascination in political theory and philosophy. And how do we construct society? How, you know, what is the social contract? And what does that mean? Like, it, what, what is power? What does it mean to be a ruler? What does it mean to be a subject? What do we owe to each other in those contexts? You know, so those were all kind of the questions that we would talk about in political science. And then I started taking also international studies uh, classes. So that taught me more about kind of the realities of what was happening in the world. Political science is all theory, right? International studies was like real case studies. Um, so the, those two things fit together. Uh, I was really interested in international law starting out, and then I worked in the field, and then I realized that that's probably not the best way to have an impact on the day-to-day, -day. Uh, you know, that probably for now with my, like, you, you know, skills and resources... Yeah. That the best thing to do to have the greatest impact is to work with people on a case-by-case -case basis. And I've always viewed people in your position who spend these countless hours helping other people, even from a professional perspective, as people who have kind of, I use air quotes here for people who can't see me, who've seen some things. And you sort of alluded to that uh, with your experiences. What were some specific moments that you experienced uh, that led you to this path of law 
uh, you mentioned going to church and kind of seeing what happened with our people. Did that have any effect on the path that you eventually took? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we grew up, you know, going to church and hearing the stories about the things that happened to Assyrians uh, throughout the years and their struggles. And I also grew up with parents who had just immigrated to America. I was born here, but my parents immigrated here. And I saw how hard it was and how much they sacrificed and you know how, how, how hard they had to work just to give us an opportunity at life if they had stayed behind. I would not have, I would not be a lawyer today. I'd you know, be, have been lucky to get married at 18 to a person who could provide for me and you know, uh, that, that would be the limits of the opportunities right. available to do you me. Feel they, that, they did that for me. No, of course. And did you feel that there was, and I see this a lot within our community, a lot of pressure on you to kind of uh, elevate yourself and do something big because your parents made those sacrifices? Or were you sort of looking at, I just have all these opportunities, let me do what fits best with me? Um, I would say the latter. I, I'd say growing up in such a small community, one of the downsides to that that I think a lot of us feel, like there's a friction because we want to break through this glass ceiling, but at the same time, because the community is so small and tight-knit, it has to also protect itself. And so that's not conducive to get out there and seize the world kind of right. uh, mentality. <laughs> you know, it's like stay home and raise a family and, you know, like proliferate and, and teach the language and follow you know, the script, follow right? the script so that we can sustain ourselves. And these are two very real, very conflicting, but like true points of view. It's always been an interesting battle. <laughs> We were talking earlier uh, off the air about your education, how you had gone to DePaul for your undergrad and graduated uh, from U of C with your law degree. Uh, before you even graduated with your law degree, you still were working in the field. And on your website, uh, abrahamlaw.co, it does mention that from 2005 to 2011, you were the civil rights director of the Chicago chapter of the Council on American Islamic Relations. Mm -hmm. How did that come to be? Uh, a series of just things that happened. Um, I was involved in college with some student groups that were like their civil rights had been affected. So they had, we were trying to figure out what was the best way to respond. Um, it was a Palestinian, Students for Justice in Palestine was the name of the organization. And uh, CARE Chicago was a chapter that had just started. And they were uh, looking for volunteers, so I wanted to help with this issue because my friends were, you know, affected by what had happened to them. And then I started to learn about more of the work that they did. They had um, a lot of interesting projects that dealt with the way that a religious community here in the United States was being affected. And so I, I took it up as kind of a, just an interest in. Like this is the general, we're here in America and I'm an American, okay? I was born here. Yes, I am a Syrian, but my political and, and my understanding of like uh, what a society, how a society should function and what my rights are, are very much based in an American upbringing, not in any other upbringing. And so I truly believe that if a society can't protect the rights of all, then it, it actually the rights don't exist at all. And that we need to, justice isn't something that you ask for and then receive. It's something that you have to assert. And so it, it kind of like gave me an opportunity, I think, working with this organization to harness 
these and, and focus these skills, develop these skills because, you know, uh, it was just, it was the, I, I can't explain it. It was like how politics was developing at the time and what civil rights issues became popular and became at the forefront because of what was happening in this country at the time, you know, it was shortly after 9-11. And so, um, you know, just like after World War II when you had the internment of the Japanese and just like, um, you know, with a lot of like black civil rights movements and you had the targeting of their communities, we saw so many things happen and I saw this is not a problem that affects one community. This is an, a problem. This is a problem that affects all Americans. It's a problem that's going to seep into uh, our personally Assyrian lives in the United States because we're Middle Eastern and you're not, you cannot count on bigoted people to distinguish between the Middle Eastern people from this sect versus that religion versus that sect. I mean, give me a break. Right. We had cases at Care Chicago with Assyrians who had been discriminated against because they were seen just as, you know, you're just as brown and foreign as the guy that, you know, like they don't distinguish the guy named Muhammad versus the guy named Nabil, you know? <laughs> I feel like from my experience, there it's hard to explain the difference between uh, an Iraqi and an Iranian and a, a Syrian, you oh, know? Oh, try coming from Syria. <laughs> yes. <laughs> where my family oh, is from. Man. Where they'll be like, where are you from? Um, we're from, we're Assyrian. Oh, so from Syria. Well, like, yes and no. I mean, like, sure, yeah, my family was from Syria, but we're Assyrian. And they're like, all of these words sound the same. I don't, <laughs> I'm not really picking up on the. You mentioned 9-11, actually, as a moment where you saw a lot of the uh, the injustices and stuff and how people were treated. Was that kind of the moment that sort of spurred um, that, that light bulb that went off in your head where there is a lot of inequality in the country or people that don't get treated justly and fairly? Yeah, partly also because of my age at the time, you know, I mean, I think we all get to an age where if you're paying attention, you do see that the world is an inherently fallen, unfair place. What do you do about it? You know, um, do you take, do you, do you act? Do you protect yourself and your family? Do you, and I, I, I personally think that any approach you take is a valid one. Um, I made my choice. I wanted to, to act, to be active in it. In that position uh, with uh, the, you being the civil rights director, you would find yourself on numerous occasions as the spokesperson of that group. Uh, you know, you did TV news, radio, all these types of interviews. Was that an added stress at all to what you were already doing? Um, yeah, it was because for a lot of reasons, I, I have conflicting feelings about the media in general and how media um, affects or impacts the way that things play out in real life and the way that, you know, we see the world. Um, I, I think especially when there's a profit interest in the media, like there, there's, so I saw that I started to really feel like the law and the courts were not perfect, but the last place where like a fair outcome could result, you know? Okay. Um, it's the fairest shot we could get. It's not perfect. Nothing is perfect, but that's kind of how I, I, it made me see that. And then my international work, I would say kind of really made me see a lot more. And in regards to some of your international travels we'll go to from 2011 to 2014, you spent time as a research fellow in the 
tiny little coastal town of Syracusa, Italy, which I believe, if I'm getting my geography right, is in Sicily, right? Mm-hmm. Not, yeah. not mainland. Okay. Under a Nobel Prize nominee. What was that experience like? Uh, it was great. So Professor Bassini um, was actually the reason I went to DePaul Law School. Wow. And uh, by, if I had not, by the way, going back to fate and, and divine intervention, if I had not worked or volunteered at Care Chicago, I never would have met him and never would have went to DePaul Law School. Wow. Maybe never have become a lawyer. So, um, so he, ha- he had a very important role in my life. Uh, he passed away last year. And he was the head of this institute in Italy. And I wanted to try something different. I wanted to start working in international law. I had just gotten my law license. I had been at CARE Chicago for years. And I felt like, okay, I I developed my skills there. Now let me see what else there is. And he's like, okay, you can go to this institute in Italy. But first, I want you to go to Bahrain. Interesting. Yeah. So he had actually just um, headed a commission in Bahrain. It was 2011, and there were protests that erupted in Bahrain, like uh, in a lot of parts of the Arab world. And there was a response from the government, like a lot of other parts in the Arab world. And um, there were allegations that a lot of human rights violations occurred, that there were people who had been killed and uh, extrajudicially detained and tortured and uh, died in detention because the detention conditions were very terrible. Um, People who were being threatened with losing their Bahraini citizenship, um, they were natural born Bahrainis, but because of their political positions, there was the threat that they would have their citizenship revoked. Um, sound familiar today? <laughs> yeah. Citizenship verification. So these. Uh, so we. He was conducting an investigation, and he needed a chief of staff. So I went there, and I was there for about four or five months. Um, I saw a lot of things. Uh, we were in uh, situations where the police and protesters were clashing, and there was like uh, tear gas and rubber bullets and injured parties um it was the first time i think i ever saw somebody like really really physically maimed by a at a protest i saw an 18 year old kid lose his eye to a rubber bullet wow Uh, people coming up to us running up to us crying and uh you know showing us like bruises and stuff because they wanted to get on record what was happening to them um did you ever feel like you were in danger of being apprehended or killed even during this whole No, because it was a government commissioned uh, investigation. So we were protected. We had sort of a diplomatic immunity while we were operating there. Otherwise, yeah, we would have been very much in danger. We probably would have been would not have been given access to the prisons and the other facility, the hospitals where we were given access to. Um, But the agreement was if you're going to let us do the investigation, then you're going to give us full access to whatever we ask for. And the government had to make that. Um, had to make a, a compromise there because if they didn't agree to it, then the UN could step in, then something else could happen, you know, things could escalate. So they, they wanted to, at that time at least, they were trying to see if there were diplomatic ways to resolve the, what was happening in the country. Um, but I'll tell you a funny story about what happened at one point there. So we go to, a, a, there, we get news that there's a protest and there's like a standoff between the protesters and the, the police and they were all there. The police are there in riot gear and they've got these like huge uh, buses filled with police officers 
all of them with these batons and these like uh, whatever they call the, the guns that shoot out the yeah. Uh, yeah. tear gas canisters and the rubber bullets and all that stuff. And so there's like a standoff and we come out and it's a team of us, like I would say about seven people. There's the chief investigators with us. And uh, we come out and all of the people, the protesters are coming out, their hands are up and they're like saying, and I didn't understand, I don't speak Arabic, by the way. I understand it, um, but I don't, I can't respond back or have any intelligent conversation with anybody in Arabic. But the the protesters come out and they're like, they knew that we were from, they called it Majlis Bisuni. It was uh, Sharif Bisuni's. Majlis, I think, means like a, a commission or something like okay. that. Okay. So, that so was you were the commission, part of the We commission. were the commission. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we were the team. And so um, we're, they're, they got their hands up and they're Majlis, Bisuni, Selmiya, Selmiya, which means like we're here peacefully, I guess, you know. They're like, we're here in peace, we're here in peace. And so they really weren't doing anything. They were holding up some signs and holding up their hands and chanting. And the police are standing off and they're being very disciplined in front of us. And so the chief investigator looks and he's like, okay. Well, it seems like things are under control here. We're going to go. So we all get into the van. We drive away. And we've got a driver given to us by the government. Okay. And so the, the you know, we, we suspect that he's letting them know when we're, where we're going or whatever. Right? Sure. So the chief investigator doesn't tell him his plans. He just says, okay, we're going to go. Drive away. So he started driving away. And then about five minutes later, he goes, driver, turn back. So, like, the driver can't. He's like, don't touch your phone. So he just makes the driver just drive us back. And so we pull up. He's like, stop right here. We pull up out of sight of where the police officer, where the standoff is taking place. And we pull up and we just in time, we see the police rush the crowd unprovoked <laughs> okay they just rush into there and then it starts the tear gas and the rubber bl- like all that stuff starts so we come out and then they immediately stop wow and they realize that we're there and they're like oh yeah they they provoked us they pro- somebody right. threw something at us you know and we're like yeah we were actually there watching and nothing happened you guys just rushed them you know that's like something and out like, of a movie yeah it was it was a really interesting experience i'll never forget it and that, that was which year that was 2011. 2011. Uh, and then in 2015, you were involved in humanitarian efforts in Syria. Take us through what was done to aid the people of Syria at that time. Um, so that was a lot of work with governments like the United States or the European Commission, um, trying to figure out where, because they had, Syria is a cluster something. Yeah, of, uh, right. You know. Um, and so politically, there's really just, it's a very terribly sad situation, you, you know, uh, it, that's being allowed to happen uh, to a devastated civilian population and the society in general. But, uh, you know, the, they do allocate in those situations, they've allocated uh, money for development programs and humanitarian aid. And so I worked with some Syrian organizations. When you say they, what do you mean by they? Um, governments, like, okay. uh, you know, well, so the wealthy governments that won't politically intervene for their whatever reasons they have, um, which I won't get into. But uh, for those reasons, they won't politically intervene. But they do set aside money for um, humanitarian aid to kind of try to mitigate the the humanitarian costs of having such a devastating war. Okay. Uh, it's by no means enough to cover the humani- the actual humanitarian needs, but it it's was something that was there. Um, 
And so I tried to work with Syrian organizations in developing humanitarian aid programs, um, programs that tried to protect the most vulnerable populations, uh, women and children, primarily uh, people with disabilities, minority groups, you know, uh, these, these groups of people who are always adverse, more adversely impacted by war because they can't protect themselves as well as the you know government can or a, a militia group could or something like that so um so we worked on those programs did you ever feel like there was a unequal or unequal distribution of aid towards certain groups versus others um and did that affect you i heard the argument go both ways so i i i've heard it said that there's a disproportionate amount of attention paid to minorities or to women and children versus young men, for example, who, if they're not, if their needs aren't met, are more likely to go and fight in a militia or become an extremist, right? There is a logical argument there to be had. That's a discussion that should be had, I think. But I, I do also, you know, see, have seen, and it's historically proven that you know small these these groups are vulnerable by virtue of the fact that they are marginalized uh disempowered and that in contexts of violence they are less likely to be able to empower themselves and so they do need some kind of added protection um it's very important like for example when you look at women women don't tend to take up arms yet we are half of the population at least half of the population and in that context have very little ability to say to have you know an outcome to have a say in the outcome to have a say in how things are going to be run or you know um because we we're we're not fighting and so somehow that's like that contribution is less valuable Mm -hmm. or minority groups because you just don't have the population what does it matter what you think should happen you know, and right. I think that's wrong. I think that's not how things should be. That's why we have problems. In fact, I would point to that as the reason why there's sectarianism and fighting and the balkanization of the Middle East right now. So you've experienced all of these different things. You have this vast educational background uh, again, uh, you know, under a Nobel Peace Prize nominee on top of all of that. So fast forward a little bit. Abraham Law and Consulting LLC is the name of your firm located in Chicago. Was that, once you got into law, was that always the goal once you decided to, to go down that route? No. So what brought, <laughs> what brought out the, I need to do this for myself now and set up my own practice? I think I came to the realization that if I were to truly want to do things the way that I want to do them or the way I think they should be done, then I need to do it independently. So I didn't, I didn't want to have any bosses anymore. Um, uh, I've had some great bosses, by the way, in my, my career, but I felt like that, that I had to come to the time where um, I needed to articulate my own vision and work towards my own vision for what I wanted to do professionally, not be, you know, working for somebody else's. I'd, I'd learned what I could learn, I felt like, from others. What were the challenges of setting up your own practice versus being under somebody else's umbrella? Um, all the things that I didn't think that I needed to know that <laughs> I, I realized, oh, I, I, I need to know something about that. Learn on the fly, right? Exactly. A lot of learning on the fly. Um, I didn't... I, I've been... 
my entire career has been honing these like legal skills and I didn't have any business sense whatsoever starting it. So that that part I was completely unprepared for and I've been very so far fortunate that it's worked. Uh, <laughs> I don't I don't have any like training or background in it and looking back in hindsight I probably should have you know taken some business classes sure. with those international studies classes or something. I feel like Chicago gets this reputation sometimes deservedly so of being very bureaucratic and having to go through a lot of red tape. Were were there a lot of moments when you were trying to set up your business which you do have a, a brick and mortar location where you would get letters in the mail or phone calls from somebody going, "Hey, you need to do this or sign off on this." That made you go, "Oh, come on. Like why is this necessary?" Um not for not necessarily for a law practice. Um I didn't really come up against the red tape stuff. I think it was just not, like, and I think it happens to everybody who tries to venture out and do their own thing. Is like there's always going to be stuff you didn't think about. Oh, it just give it's a given. Just sure. account for it. Put a space on your column on your list of things to do for stuff I didn't think about. You know, <laughs> that's the that was the first lesson to learn. And I think it's any anybody who has a small business has to learn that lesson real quick. And if you can't, then you don't adapt and then it fails. So so far, knock on wood, so far so good. Am yeah. I right? Yeah. I would imagine that you have a lengthy list of heartbreaking circumstances and cases that you've taken. Can you tell us about some of the more profound stories that you've had to listen to? I think the ones that like that are the most, that stand out in my mind the most are the ones where people live like people experiencing some kind of a humanitarian need um i'm not sure how much i can get into like the details of each individual case oh yeah absolutely um, you don't have to give anything specific um, but like somebody who really needs something human that any human being if they heard what the situation was would be like yes of course absolutely but then there's like this bureaucracy and these politicized laws and i, I speak mostly about immigration law now when i when i say this um that actually prevent us from being able to treat people like the human beings that they are. Um, people who are here legally in this country who can't reunite with their family members, for example, because well, you know, their relatives come from, they're either refugees, and so the United States doesn't want to allow refugees coming and visiting other refugees here. You know, the families get split up. Um, you know, you have some people who are in Europe and some who are in Australia and some in the United States, and then you want to, you know, visit your mom and dad for the first time in 10 years since you all had to flee Iraq and you can't do it because they're not going to let you in here. And things like that, like uh, families affected by the travel ban, for example. Um, you know, a lot of Assyrians from Syria are starting to see problems. They've been waiting for years to just apply, to have the chance to apply to be reunited with their families. And now they can't do it because of, an, you know, arbitrary... Ban. What do you tell people in those situations when there is a ban that you can do nothing about in the immediate sense? How do you comfort or tell somebody that it, eventually it'll be okay for them? It's hard. There's not much you can say to comfort people in that situation. Um, I think the, that my duty to them is to exhaust every possible remedy and to, to uh, pursue their interests. So I will continue to do that, but it's not going to happen at any, you know, anywhere close to their timeline. So I just preparing them kind of to have to deal with this is going to be a long battle. 
but we won't stop. We're going to keep going. We're not going to stop until we get your get your family reunited, bring the relatives over here. And this actually ties into what you were saying earlier about the media and how they disseminate information. I think we used to hear a lot about these travel bans a year ago, two years ago, but then all of a sudden you don't really hear as much about them now in late 2018 that you did, you know, in 2017. Are those pretty much sort of still status quo? Is there still a lot of fighting back on that? Have they laxed on any of that travel ban whatsoever on a federal level? No, um, no. And in fact, it's becoming very clear that there isn't, there hasn't been any kind of I feel like it's become clear, in my opinion, that the travel ban itself was a publicity stunt, that there wasn't any actual thought into how will this be implemented. Um, I think it was they didn't care about the mess that they were going to create for all of these people's lives. Um, for example, there's, there's language in the travel ban that says if you're a refugee, if you're a minority, if you have... Uh, you know that that the, that there's a waiver for you, but that waiver hasn't been applied to anybody. You know, there's a hardship waiver that you, you know if you're a U.S. citizen, you're trying to bring your family over. You can, you're entitled to if you can establish hardship, your relatives should be able to come in. They actually have no process for requesting a hardship waiver. They have no forms. And when we've asked, like, what do we do to establish this? We've been told that there is no process to establish wow. it, and so. You know, uh, it's an astounding thing. I'm surprised the media isn't talking about it anymore. And at the same time, I'm not because it's a short attention span of the American of course. media. I mean, they, uh, they're like dogs chasing their own tail sometimes. I mean, it's crazy. Sometimes I think that, like, I mean, I, I don't think it's a secret where I stand politically with respect to today's president. Um but I do think that if anybody has shown that he can really control uh, the, the media, it's him. I mean, they just... And to another extent on that, we had more recent news. It was in the last couple of months of this caravan that was coming from even south of Mexico, mostly Central America. And it was the way it was being um, disseminated from at least the executive branch of our government was... There's these, this invading force that's going to come to the border and we need to move our military there. And now you don't hear about it anymore. And do you think that also plays into uh, their attempt to keep this ban in place and keep it all kind of legal? Um, I don't know if they've, I don't know if it this strategically it's as well thought out as you just okay. laid it out. A little I, more random. I, th I think that the troops to the border was a show of force, but it was a show to the base, not to the actual people who would be affected, because I don't think you're going to have caravans of people trying to engage uh, with violence or force the people, the Americans at the border with without the troops there right. you know it, there's never been a history of something like that nobody's right. invaded us like that ever these are migrants you know coming in because they're trying to escape terrible situations uh in their home countries and so that's you know the response itself is like this is just a show this was something that you did to your for your fan base and it's not gonna affect you know, anything it's not gonna affect anything except in the negative <laughs> You are currently the vice president of the Assyrian American Bar Association. I have that correct, right? Vice yes. president. Uh, we've had our friend Tony Kalagarakis on the pad, uh, podcast before discussing this, but I want to hear it from you. 
What does the Assyrian American Bar Association mean to you? Tell us what it's all about. Um, I think it's a great professional organization where uh, we as Assyrian attorneys can get together and uh, first support each other, support our community, talk about ways that we can engage uh, and and, uh, provide our community with access to information about their legal rights with different things. I mean, we, we are living here and a lot of people don't know, for example, what, um, you know, what benefits that they can apply for or how to create a will, uh, what, how, you know, what they're going to leave behind for their families or, um, you know, uh, the community that was affected by what happened with the uh, roundups with ICE, with Immigration and Customs, like the roundups that last year, um, you know, how were they impacted? And we really wanted to be able to be there as a group and as an organized unit to be able to respond to these things and be a source, a resource for our community and and for each other, I would say. And a, a big emphasis of the Assyrian American Bar Association is also to mentor future uh, lawyers, from what I've read. Um, how, why is it important, rather, for Assyrians to become lawyers? Um, I think it's important if you want to be a lawyer to become a lawyer. Um, I I wouldn't say it's important for Assyrians to become okay. lawyers. I think it's important for Assyrians to be successful at whatever it is they set out to do. Um, and if law is something that you are attracted to, then do it. I think we certainly have a legacy there. The Assyrians have a legacy in the law that, um, you know, it's natural i would say for people to be inclined to that culturally too we have a cultural inclination because we we're very argumentative (laughs) and and, you know we're very uh charismatic and we like to talk you know and and so the law suits a lot of us i think and and why not you know um and i think in a lot of cases i'm not i'm not going to say most cases or i just know in a lot of cases there is some sort of parental and family pressure on somebody to become a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer but if you don't want to be any of those three things that's okay correct oh yeah absolutely absolutely i'd say do um pursue the career that you think will fulfill give you a purpose in life i would say that's important and one that is responsible to yourself and to your family and to your community I've actually read and heard some local immigration stories the last year or so that actually involve our neighbors to the north, Canada. And they're kind of interesting stories because I've always grown up knowing that our relationship with Canada is really good. So I was always thrown off when I've read about these. It's simple cases of people getting visas to come here for an extended time. They even sell their home or they terminate their lease in an apartment that they're renting, uh, all in an effort to move to the United States only to be turned away by border patrol. Has something in the law changed, or has this been the case for a while, and I've just kind of completely been uh, under the rug about it? Um, I mean, it could be that they're paying more attention now than ever, but the law has always been that unless you have an, a visa to immigrate to the United States, that you, if there's evidence that you're coming in like on a tourist visa and... Uh, it looks like you're planning to stay a lot longer sure. than that, then they can, they do have the legal right to reject uh, your entry. Okay. And so, but I, I don't know how, I think over the years and especially more recently, it's, uh, there's been more attention to that issue, you know, uh, to, to 
beefing up security and making sure that you know the customs and borders are actually implementing those laws what if somebody actually has a work visa and they still don't answer the questions the way a border patrol agent would like is that border patrol agent within their rights to tell them no you need to turn around and you're not welcome in Depending on the situation, um, they have a lot of discretion about who they let come into the United States. And uh, so if you have a green card, for example, they, they have to put you in proceedings if they think that there's a reason to take your green card away. Um, they have to give you proceedings. If you're a U.S. citizen, you have a constitutional right to re-enter the United States. Okay. Um, how you re-enter, however, is not something that they have. Like, for example, they can ban you from getting on a plane sure um so you'd have to take a boat you know right. but once you get to the border you have to be admitted and they can't keep you from uh coming in um but that's a, a separate thing this is a bit of a deep question maybe even a philosophical question so you might like this one is the united states legal system fair for lack of a better word or is it broken and rigged in favor of those with mostly power and wealth? Uh, it's definitely, to me, the latter. Um, but, but there is something, there's a concept, I would say, in our Constitution that's called due process. There is an idea in our legal system that things have to be, the, the, the playing ground has to be fair, that the rules of the game have to be fair. And if the rules of the game are fair, then the outcome can be fair. Not necessarily is fair, but can be fair. Sure. Um, at least you have the, mo the best opportunity at a fair outcome in that situation. I think that that's a beautiful thing in the Constitution. Nothing is perfect, but that's what gives it the potential for fair outcomes. I think the system itself is rigged. If you look at you know, uh, the people we have in this country in detention and how we even address the criminal justice uh, in this country, how we uh, decide how to um, punish people for crimes. Um, when they're punished for crimes, what happens to them if they're not citizens of this country? We've seen a lot of families uh, torn apart because of uh, very draconian, in my opinion, uh, laws that are there to protect those in power and that are there to keep in check the masses. Um, and I think that's always there, but it's, it's something that you can work towards improving. Did you ever see any parallels when you were in Bahrain and witnessing what you did or seeing some of the stuff in Syria and you think in a in a creepy freaky kind of way the united states almost kind of shadows this as well or is the united states system still head and shoulders above kind of anything else that you've experienced despite some of the disparity i think what it, one thing those experiences taught me is that no matter how stable you think your situation is it can all come undone in a moment mm. um, i don't think that bahrainis thought that their government was unstable before this stuff happened to them. I don't think that Syrians thought that their government was unstable before 2011. Um, so it, it, that's what kind of surprised the world, I, I think, about the Arab Spring uh, and the way that the Arab Spring turned into something very different from a spring at all. Um, I think it can happen in the United States as easily it's as, as it could anywhere else. We do have... Um, 
a lot of vitriol out there and a lot of um, people who are just kind of escalating the debate or escalating the discord as over finding solutions to whatever the problems that we've identified are. And there are a lot of like cap, you know, interests in protecting certain classes of people um, at the expense of the majority of people. Um, There's a lot I can get into on this subject, but I would say that it's not a, we're not in a stable situation, but we are still in control of what happens if we're aware, Um, but not if we're kind of close our eyes and just kind of let things be. if you're if you're gonna make the decision to be apathetic in this juncture, then um, you know be prepared for whatever happens. Do I you guess. think there's been a long-standing history of just kind of apathy and ignorance from a, a large portion of the population, or do you think it's worse now than it's ever been? I think I think a little bit of both. I think I think in the past, there's just been kind of a lot of trust that the system will work itself out, that the system is equipped to work these issues out. And I think that there have been a lot of changes in recent history in the last, say, 15 to 20 years, technological changes, changes in the way we talk to each other as a society and the things that we value and focus on um, that I think changed the game a little bit. And we're not we haven't been able to adapt Um Politically, I, I, I think we, you know, we should be more concerned, I think, with the economic impacts and economic rights for the masses than, than anything else right now. Okay. I think those are a, a, a threat right now for everybody. What can we do as a society and as a people to aid justice and humanitarianism? Well, the first thing that, that I would suggest people do is be aware of the issues that are out there and um you know do vote and do contact your uh congressperson to let them know what you think about immigration issues for example that's very important right now um they need to hear from immigrant communities who are u.s who have a large number of u.s citizens like assyrians Mm -hmm. uh, could be very instrumental in stopping some of these things happen if they were more active sure um and so i think these political activism is important it plays its role i also think that focusing on empowering our young people to be able to make decisions in this world and to navigate the new landscape that we're in right now successfully so that they can themselves be able to kind of ride these tumultuous waves and be able to protect their community better. Um, I think that's also important, empowering young people. And finally, if you can leave us with one thing that you would like to tell Assyrians here or abroad that might be listening. Here's one thing I would say, um, and this could be something that people would debate, and not everybody I'm sure would agree with me, but I think that Assyrians are very um, intro, like focused on themselves as a community, and they're not, they don't really necessarily focus on how their issues um, or their interests might align with other people. They're not particularly active uh, when it doesn't pertain to them Mm. and and then when something happens to assyrians we're wondering why nobody else in the world cares about our plight and so 
Um, I think that we do have to start to realize that we are a small group of people in a globalized world, which gives us more of an opportunity to engage and to impact and to affect change than it ever did in the past. And if we were to learn how to engage the world around us rather than to feel like we just have to shield ourselves from the rest of the world, we would probably see ourselves do a lot better. Christina, this was a very enlightening, knowledgeable conversation. And I thank you very much for your time. 